Good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, that was so weak. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <clears throat> Sweet. So glad you guys are here. It's a full house this morning. Uh, you'll see in a little while we'll get to celebrate uh, young Billy the Goat. If you haven't gotten to meet him yet, it's uh, Brad and Sarah Parr's young king back there somewhere. So I know we've got a lot of family here to celebrate that. But this morning we'll get the privilege to continue our series in Philippians. Uh, if you were here last week, you got to hear our missional communities director, Tyler Joyner, lead us through Philippians, uh, what do you go, five, five through seven, and I'll get to go through eight through 11 this morning. So if you want to turn to Philippians three, eight through 11, that's where we'll be in Paul's continued letter to the church of Philippi, and we'll get to continue off the perfect launch pad that we got to see last week. As our context comes from verse 7, that says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now picking up in 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as we can recall from Tyler's teaching last week, we had the chance to begin to see through scripture how Paul counted all things, Paul, who was a man of high esteem, especially in religious regards, became the least of these in order to know Christ. If you can recall who Paul was, he lived quite a life, first of persecuting the church, and then eventually became persecuted for the sake of the church. So we began to see that, and in 7 we got to read, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. And this week, he doubles down in continuation of that thought that not only did he count everything as loss, but indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. So this morning, we'll get to dive into that and really try to answer the question for all of ourselves is have we experienced Christ? Have we experienced the gospel? Not for the sake of experience itself, but we see from Paul's life and hopefully from ours in here this morning, if we can say we're a Christ follower, we have certainly experienced the gospel. So hopefully at the end of this passage this morning, we'll understand a little more fully what that means and what our lives would reflect if we have experienced the gospel. So Father, thank you so much for this chance to come together this morning and worship. God, we know it is something that we get to do without fear this morning while many of our brothers and sisters are having to gather in secret and in hiding. God, we thank you that that is not the case for us, that we can come together and worship freely and wholly rely on you, God. So please, this morning, reveal yourself to us, God, in new ways. Renew our minds that we may know you more and love you more, God, as you have loved us. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for first loving us. And thank you for your word for us to study and live by. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you're, as you're with me in Philippians 3, 8 here, we can see that it's not, uh, it's not a passive 
counting as loss. Paul is actively saying here, indeed, I count everything as loss. This is important for us to understand, especially in our context today, when there's so many things competing for our minds and ultimately our attentions, which then conjures the desires of our heart. And make note of that if you're a note taker in here. Scripture all throughout speaks of renewal of the heart first through renewing of the mind. A heart made new through the renewing of the mind. So it's important today to take note of what Paul is saying here, especially in our context and day-to-day life, when there's so many things that try to portray excellence but are nothing stacked up to the standard of excellence being Christ. And it's easy for us to be so fleeting in what we give our attentions to, our minds to, and ultimately our hearts to through those, right? We are fickle humans with fickle emotions and passions given to us that are, as I said, fleeting. You can ask my fiance in the back, when I get on a kick, I get on it. If Jonah Hill's putting out a skating movie, I pretend I've been skating since middle school, right? If, if somebody is talking about new music, I'll go listen to it and act like I've been listening to them for years. Sometimes I have, right? The example is we have so many things competing for our attention, and our attention is so easily swayed by things that portray excellence rather than looking at excellence itself in Christ. So not only are our minds in competition for the things of this world, but ultimately the throne of our hearts. Note here, Paul doesn't say that all things are lost for the sake of knowing what we can get through Christ, or or that all things are lost for the sake of what's next through Christ, or that all things are lost for the sake of deliverance. None of those things, none of those things that are so temporal in comparison to knowing Christ himself. I think it's something so beautiful to take note of that he says he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's something that's easy for us is sometimes we equate knowing to believing when perhaps that should be the case, but a lot of times we may say we believe but don't truly know who we're saying we believe in. And that we go out into the world with such a, a sand-shifting foundation of the Lord, we say we believe. Perhaps the question is, is throughout the week, do we strive to know the Lord as much as we say we believe Him? The Scripture is very clear also that even the demons believe Christ to be Lord, yet they're still demons. And the question we got to tackle in MC, too, as we looked at Romans this week, is we may say we have this zeal for God, and Paul examines the church in Rome as some people who have this zeal for God, but not zeal for the knowledge of God. So hang, me, hang with me. We've been exchanging knowledge of God for experiencing God in a way that leaves no knowledge of God himself. And it's such a dangerous pitfall, especially here in the Southeast and the American church today, as there are plenty of congregations gathering right now with pastors in the pulpit who may be lying, saying there's something greater to be experienced through Christ, rather than acknowledging the greatest experience in this life is Christ himself. That there's this sort of 
path we must walk or sort of mode of belief we must have in order to get the thing that's next, in order to receive the next blessing. It's in songs. It's all throughout this life. This ideology that our best life is now or that best self is on the other side of this trial and struggle when the reality is, friends, that our best has come and was crucified. So we have to start looking at things in this way of as people, as Christians who gather and say we believe in Christ, do we love to know Christ as much as we say we believe him? If we don't, we begin to slip into the slippery slope of living life as if Christ has not come yet. We don't have a sort of confidence in our faith, and therefore we go out into the world portraying a faith that's really not worth believing in. Evangelism on campus, in our workspaces, in our own families, perhaps the reason that they're not attracted to our gospel isn't because the gospel is not attractive, but because we're not living out the true gospel in the midst of them. Do we live our lives as if Christ has come? So why are all things lost then? It's an important question to raise if we think that Christ, and as Scripture tells us, Christ has given us things to enjoy, that God sent Christ to come, as we see in John 10.10, that we may have life and have it to the full. So then the distinction needs to be made. What does Paul mean here when he's saying he counts all things as loss? Does that mean that we go the course of many monks who stay in temples and never interact with the world? Do we lock ourselves in our rooms and simply study and study and study, never share what we are learning with the world? That guy gets it. (laughs) That's a sad fact of the matter, as sad as he sounds right now. When we begin to think that this world has anything to offer us on top of Christ, let alone when we begin to think that our faith can be shaped and added to by things of this world that simply portray excellence. We begin to slip into this way of living where we begin to worship creation rather than creator. So what does it mean to count all things as loss? Again, is the question, do we lock ourselves away? Do we simply sit amongst each other? and study our Lord. While that's not bad within itself, while it's necessary, while we come and congregate here, Scripture also commands us to go and be all things to all people, meet them where they're at, as Christ has met us where we're at. So certainly that's not the case, and how we count all things as loss. But if we continue on in verse 9. As 8 reads, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. There's a beautiful fun fact that the word rubbish Paul uses here in its original Greek that Brendan will throw up on the screen is skibalon. Our equivalent today in its translation is the exact to feces. To the point that all things are counted as lost, that they become so detestable as excrement. That's only worth is to be thrown out with the dogs. 
Paul's not saying this for some sort of shock value, even though it is a call to attention that we need to see what we are holding up next to Christ and if we're viewing it as even similar to Christ or if we count it for what it is. So then Paul isn't saying that we simply throw off all things and abstain and live this life of self-righteous purity, but rather saying that he counts the substance of all things as loss compared to Christ. And when he does say all things, he means all things. He means those that are temporal and materialistic of this world, even the things that are shadows of what's to come through our fellowship here today. While it is great and Christ has given us this as shadows of what it's going to be like to fellowship with him forever. Others is, is uh, uh, engagement. I'm getting walked through right now. It's a shadow of perfect unity that's to come with Christ when we pass through this life and go home into eternity. Even so, all things in their substance, when held up next to Christ, are counted as loss, as skibalon. Is that true in our lives? What is the thing that we're holding at least equivalent to, or even in the throne of Christ where he belongs in our minds and hearts? It's certainly worth considering. And we can take note from last week's teaching that Paul himself didn't simply pass over or denounce his heritage himself, his upbringing, where he was saying, uh, the greatest of these a Jew, and when it came to the law, a zealot. All these things he still considered, and he said of himself when he could have just as easily glazed over them and passed over them. Instead, he acknowledges them as he is grateful for them, as we can also be grateful, like we prayed in opening, that we can gather here. So friends, I'm not saying to simply throw off all things, as all things are simply given to us as a medium to engage with those who don't know our Savior, but rather the substance of all things in comparison to knowing Christ. So stick with me here. Paul didn't put off all things or denounce his past where he was or where he was going for the sake of himself. He didn't lock himself away and sterilize his entire life so that he could be some mirage of Christ himself. Rather, Paul experienced the gospel, the power of Christ crucified, so much so that any other experience stacked up against the experience of the gospel was counted as loss. So perhaps is our view of the gospel so great? We can apply the same way of thinking that we see in verses 8 and 9. That this, this idea that this life can bring us about something good or something more than Christ is just simply not true. And as I said, there are many who may be gathered right now hearing that through Christ, there is something more to be had. And how exhausting is that? How exhausting would it be to go through life and thinking, here's Christ, here's what he did, that's all good and well. Now I'm hearing that I need to act a certain way to garner more of Christ. How exhausting would it be if prayer was turned from fellowship and a tool that Christ uses to shape us into his image and said became something like an Amazon wish list of blessings that we're waiting on? 
How exhausting is that? To stack up our own chips of self-righteousness that we have to take before the creator of the universe at the end of our lives. Fact of the matter is, it is completely exhausting, and if that be the case, we're relying on nothing than our own rags. Next to perfection. So we can take note, as many of us, I'm sure, fall guilty into thinking that God responds in goodness towards our own goodness. That there's some type of if-then statements that guide our faith. That if you're attending here today, that this life will be bountiful for the next week, especially if you tithe. Right? This bait-and-switch tactic that your behavior can conjure up the goodness of God as if God's not already good enough. So if we live in this mindset, in the state of being, where we don't see God's goodness as supreme, that if we don't live as if Christ has already come, and not just recognizing the reality of that, that perfection has come on this earth, walked and died our death. Something that becomes so plain in our culture and our understanding as you hear it time and time again. I know you've heard it, but back to our question is, have you experienced it? Have you experienced the power of the gospel so much so that if you were to lose everything, you would still be able to rejoice in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? John Calvin put it this way, that this was equivalent to men of the sea at that time that would be in their ship on a rocking ocean, that they would have all their cargo, all their goods, all these things that they needed to survive their journey. But as the storm would rage and toss the ship to and fro, that they would need to begin throwing things overboard as they took on water. So Paul's equivalent to counting all things as loss is that he would throw off everything in comparison to the one thing getting him through life and knowing Christ. As men of the sea throw everything overboard as long as it means they are steady in the ship and make it to their destination. How much of us are doing the same and that we have things in this life that are at least creeping their way up to the top of being equivalent to Christ and we're leaving them there. More than that, putting them on a higher pedestal. And we wonder why life can be so draining when the core of our being and existence becomes Jesus plus. Becomes Christ and His excellency plus our own standard. Plus the standard of the world. Plus heaping the law of the Old Testament back on ourselves. The fact of the matter is when we reach the end of this course, if we're on our proverbial ship, and we're taking on water day by day as the world heaves its trials and tribulations at us, and we strive towards Christ, the fact is we are taking on water every single day. How much unnecessary things are we keeping on our own ship? When in reality, we think it's those things that are saving us, those things that are making this life worth enjoying, those things that are making this life worth it when they're unworthy compared to worthiness itself. That what do we need to stop and examine needs to go overboard in our own lives for the sake of our ship not sinking under the weight of our self-expectation and righteousness. 
Verse 9 is very, very clear that Paul hoped to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's very clear, guys, that if we are putting our hope in a righteousness of our own, that when all things are burned away, when we are stripped to the core, face to face with our Creator one day, the only thing He'll be pleased in seeing is the semblance of His Son. So why not live our lives in such a stance, in such a way that our soul clings to Christ? Why take all these additives that it's Christ plus our works? That we twist scripture, that works are a joy to the Christian, that give us life as we live out our purpose and make them the foundation of our faith. Why carry the weight of the law that was not meant for you and was hung on the cross? Can we truly be useful then in taking life to the world if we're sludging through it ourselves looking like we're dying. It's my hope as well as Paul's that we'd be quick to realize every breath of every waking day that we are in dire need of saving. That yes, Christ came and was crucified and risen, so through that we are saved, but we still need him every day, every hour we need him, every breath. Are we so quick to forget that the only way all of us are even still breathing now is because God is actively breathing life into you. That the only reason your heart is beating is because God has not told it yet to stop. That our very next moment hinges on the creator of the universe being ever-present and all-knowing. Do we have such a proper view of God or do we place ourselves in such a context? This makes me think of Moses' plea to God in Exodus. I know Brendan will throw it up. As Moses and his people were being delivered unto Christ and, and Moses is having this back and forth conversation. And like many of us today, and you'll understand this context, we want to see more. We, we want the next big thing. And it's, it may be of no fault to those who are hearing that right now as they've been set up to think that there is a next big thing aside from Christ. So Moses says in Exodus 33, 18 through 20, Please show me your glory. And he, the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Just the name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Pay attention to this. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. How backwards is that to a Christian culture today that only wants to see God? How many people are walking through life saying the same thing Moses said? Please show me your glory. I only want to see you. 
And God's response is, man cannot see my face and live. That the seraphim in heaven, supreme beings, can't even turn their many eyes towards the Lord lest they be blinded. Yet, we as a people only clamor and conjure up wanting to see God move, wanting to see his fruit in our life, wanting to see the next big thing when his greatest thing and propitiation has already come. Do we live in the reality that perfection has come? Do we live in the promise that Christ has died? Is that real to us? Or is that just an ideological thing? Is that just some existential belief that is no different than a self-help guide through this life to make it a little bit easier? Friends, the gospel is good news, yes, because it directly faces the things that we face in this world, from anxiety to depression, from helplessness to hopelessness, from loneliness to solitude to suffering. But guys, something that's important to take note of here is the gospel itself, Christ himself, did not come to be the key answer to every social justice movement of today. It came as something that's far greater, far more promising and fulfilling that while yes, it engages those things and teaches us how to look at those things and view those things as Christ does, it is still only good news because Christ has died our death. That is why it's good news. While yes, it does prop us up on a firm foundation, it's good news because of the foundation itself. That as we go through lives, our lives, are we like Moses in thinking and pleading that only our faith hinges on seeing God move? Or do we have such a small view of his glory that we forget, as scripture just says, we cannot see him and live That if we are saying and taking note of what we're saying, God, I just want to see you. I just want to see you move. I want to see your face. And we want new revelation from him as if he has not given himself in fullness of Christ. Consider 100% God and 100% man as Christ was. The perfect propitiation and sacrifice. And we think there's something more? I would wager and ask yourself the question, as I ask myself all week prepping for this, is if there was something more, what would it be? Would we become Christ ourselves? If that's true, could we carry the weight of the world's sin? Not only that, could we carry out the perfection of sinful children? Do we relish in Christ's goodness or seek our own? Are are we content with having a righteousness that comes from the power of Christ's resurrection and of simply knowing Christ? And see, at least for myself, that, that statement causes so much friction, whether I know it or not, and that the only worth I have in this life, the only hope, the only power, the only foundation comes from a Christ and a God that is so big that I need only to know him. And not just believe, but know 
a type of knowledge that spurs belief that he did do the things he said, he is doing the things he promised, and will come back. So then the second question we must ask ourselves on top of, do we live as if Christ has come, and do we live as if he's coming back? Because while the gospel is good news, it is also damning news to those who do not know Christ when he returns. Are we living with such urgency that we know Christ is coming back? Or is the church just what the world is viewing as some sort of plaything, as some sort of club that's no different than the places Brad, Kyle, and I go golfing at? Is that our view of Christ's bride? Because he promises, and here's the truth of Scripture that we can see all throughout Revelation, that he is coming back that righteousness will be repaid with righteousness and wrath will be had on those who do not believe. And we're also made very clear in Scripture, those who do not believe will not believe lest they hear the gospel. They will not hear the gospel unless it is preached to them. And we will not preach the gospel until we begin to live as if Christ has come and as if he's coming back. That our very being sits in the middle of two supreme truths, that our purpose has come and will sustain us until his return. We see that in verses 10 and 11, that we should count all things to the point of loss, their substance so temporal and passing and so empty. Like we used the illustration a little while ago, it's almost as if if we live off the things of this world or things of Christ plus this world and we base our lives on half-truths, Get some help from my MC when a half-truth is nothing but a lie. And we stuff our very being full of sweet things that are easy to swallow down and easy to hear. It's as if we try to go through this life on nothing but cotton candy. It won't sustain us. It won't help us endure till the end. As Paul uses this verbiage very specifically, he has suffered the loss of all things. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Share in his sufferings. Consider logistically. We're not going to share in the victory until we're made alive through our death. That this life is just a waiting room that we try to be as obedient as possible and dying to self every day to truly live. Friends, the, the, the strange thing about why our faith should stick out so much in this world, even amongst those brothers and sisters who would claim to be pursuing Christ alongside us, is because our very life hinges on our daily death. It doesn't mean throw your hands up and quit, but it means recognize that Christ being our life itself cannot be lived if we're trying to serve our own life. And that's the beauty of freedom in Christ is that he sent perfection, said, here is your propitiation, submit yourself to his sufferings, not look at this, what can you do to stack up against it? Instead, it's such a freeing thing that we're told we can't that a righteousness of ours according to the law won't, but that it doesn't have to. Christianity is an invitation to share in the sufferings of Christ. 
Because in the sufferings of Christ, we become like him in his death as we die to self. As 11 says, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. In a world that seems like the cards are stacked against us, when the reality is that the things of this world are chiseling away at us day by day. When we feel that friction, we feel the friction of the Holy Spirit being shut up inside our bones as Christians and swimming against the tide of this world. And as things that, that seem so deadly in our midst, how different would life look if we counted all of our losses as wins in Christ? How different would it look if we truly believe scripture when it says that he is strong in our weaknesses? That maybe all the things that we're facing this week, although they may be hard pressing, we aren't crushed under the weight of them because a far greater weight of glory has come to counteract. How much more boldly will we live out our faith and truly feel alive if we walked in the righteousness of Christ. Friends, how great news is it? What great news it is that our daily life simply relies on the sacrifice that has come and our response of daily death to self. That we're freed up of the early Roman church way of thinking, we can offer anything and get some sort of penance. That it's easy to look back on and see as wrong now. That in the Roman Catholic church, there were things put up as alms that we could receive some type of blessings through mediators of Christ and popes and fathers. But really, how different is it for us today when we start slipping into thinking our life is our life alone and not Christ? How different is it other than the fact that it may not be monetary, or maybe it is based on the hard intention we tithe, but how different is it that we began to view the very life-giving thing, such as reading scripture, as a medium to conjure up more of Christ? How different is it really when we base God moving on our own activity of goodness? How entrapping is that? Are you lugging that around? Are you walking through death with that this morning? If you are, my plea is to simply recognize Christ, trust the scriptures, and see that is not your purpose. That there is greater life to be had through your death. That there is greater promise and excellence itself. And that nothing, though it may portray excellence, can stand against. As I said, when we reach the feet of our Creator, we will be burned to the core. What will our core be? This isn't some sort of shock jock scare tactic. It's simply scripture that when we are face to face with Christ, that also means he'll be face to face with us. That he will see as he knows us now, the very core of our being. Would you be able to genuinely say that it's Christ and his son? Are you living in that? A great pastor named Legan Duncan once said it this way. He said, help me, Father, to believe that what seem to be my losses are really gains and that each ounce of affliction is adding to the weight of glory, not only in heaven, but now. This is restated in 2 Timothy by Paul. 
2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, as he says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. One promise of goodness as sound and sure as the potential pitfall of denying Christ through the way we live our lives. Because hear me, it's not enough to just say we believe. Have you experienced the gospel? Does your life reflect it? More than that, do the actions of your life profess Christ or deny him? Are you painting a picture to a world that says, how great is our God and here's my meritous response? Or is it simply a picture of awe in Christ? Do we think, do we ponder on the things of the Lord as much as we sit and think and talk about the cheap things of sports, of pop culture, of who just put out a new album, and those are just surface level temporal things. Do we sit and ponder the reality of our Savior as much as we question Him? Do we take time to see His goodness? Do you take time to see your deliverance in your own life? Do you take time to see that those things that may be losses are really your greatest victory in Christ. That as you are chiseled away day by day, as death is at work in you, so is life through Christ. And they cannot be without each other. There's no passing over or around or going under the sufferings that we share in with Christ. That no, it's not a stipulation that you must count everything as a loss and that earns you the gift of knowing Christ. But here's the reality and our very same question we asked at the beginning is if you've experienced the gospel, if your life experientially shows Christ's efficacy, his efficiency and promise that he is our providence, then our lives will reflect it. That there is no such thing as as a neutral view to the gospel. There's just not. There's no room left for it. There's no room that it's, like a, that it's like a lottery ticket we can wait to cash in on at our own time. As you hear the gospel this morning, your life has one or two stances to either respond and accept and pursue and spread or reject and turn over to hardness of heart. But that is why God is so gracious and merciful that not only does he tell us the opposite will lead to our death, but that he invites us to life through death itself. Friends, that there is a reason he calls us to bear our cross every day, that we should see his perfect picture of suffering and hope to share in it. Because as we die with him, we also live with him. As we endure, we will also reign that every loss right now is nothing but a win that is to come, that your suffering right now is a potential testimony to a lost friend that is walking side by side you in life, that as you wait for this next season, 
you portray to them you have already received all things. That as you're in the midst of what may feel like you're losing grip of every reality that you still have your firm foundation in Christ. That Christ is the one foundation that makes that enough. That God is honest and loving enough to show us that we are not, that we don't have to be, that we're not supposed to be. So how do we do this? Again, it's not some sort of abstinence behavior modification. It's not. We don't simply reflect Christ through the things that we do based on our own merit. If that's our only hope, if we are our only hope at its core, we are hopeless. But do we understand the gospel? Do we have a zeal for knowledge of God as much as we say we believe him? As much as we say we believe who he is? A writer once put it this way. It's a beautiful and easy reminder that whatever once I counted cost, I now lay down and see my gain. We die to live lest all be lost to know the Lord and share his name. Again, is this some sort of ideological thing? Is this some sort of thing that God just tosses out there and leaves us hanging? But how do we, how do we live this out? Well, if we look at the next slide, that to know the Lord and share his name, we die to live lest all be lost. I now lay down and see my gain, whatever once I counted cost. Nothing in this life will sustain. It wasn't meant to. Christ is your greatest sustenance. If you feel like you're dying, is it because the core of your being is death itself? Or do you know the promise to die to self and live as Christ is living? What is your response this morning? Will you go so boldly throughout your life in the next week, the next month, the next year, that you would be the means by which God saves his sons and daughters? Our hope is and our prayers that we would not be the church in Philippi and shut our lights up under baskets, but that it would be the very thing we cling to as our reason for being here. And so we get, we get to take part in a sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that we get to sit and think on this, that if we don't make time for it throughout the week, that this is the very chance we have to sit and consider how our lives match or stack up against this truth. As we take and eat and remember the bodily sacrifice of Christ, as we take and drink and remember that his blood is spilt out, do we live as if it was? Is there sin you need to confess that you, is keeping you from living? in that way. That's the challenge and questions I'll leave you with. As as Christ's body, are we living in the reality that he has come? And does our life show the promise that he is coming? If this is the first time you've heard that, 
if you can celebrate that this is the first time you've understood that, come talk to Kyle, I, somebody in the back, and let us celebrate the fact that you are born again. If you cannot say you know Christ, if you cannot say you know those promises, still come and talk to us. Don't partake in the Lord's Supper as its promise means nothing to you yet. But come and talk. Press in to this with us. I promise there will be no regret. Father, thank you so much for the chance to know you, God, that our very being is sustained by not only your work, but God, by knowing you. Father, my prayer for the Branch Church, for the people in this room, is that if they don't know you yet, God, that they did for the first time this morning. That they understand salvation isn't some emotional prayer I tell them to copy, that it's not something that they can offer themselves, God, but that you are supreme and great enough that simply the knowledge of you renews the mind and wins their heart. Father, let us celebrate with that and them, God, for the fellow brother and sister in the room. Let them be emboldened and go out in this truth that we'll never be able to get by on our own merit, God, but that you never called us to. God, let us relish in the fact that the next greatest thing to come is the one you've already sent in Christ. God, that we can celebrate our greatest victory has already come, that we may live in that. Father, let that be real to us this morning. If not for the first time, we'll let it be refreshing and rejuvenating unto obedience. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.